church. And if a person came to us and said that they had any kind of unrepentant sin, it doesn't matter what it is. It's not just homosexuality. But if they said, you know, this is a sin in my life. I don't turn from it. I'm not going to agree with Jesus about it, but I want to be a member of your church. We're going to say no. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and Ann Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Doing great. I'm so excited about our guest this week, you guys. I feel like we got the heavyweight champion of the world immediately <laughs> after winning the belt. Um, in the blue trunks, Denny Burke. Denny is professor of biblical studies at Boyce College here in Louisville and has been since 2008. He also serves as associate pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church and as president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And the prize fight that he's just won, in our humble opinions, was of the internet variety involving Kristen Kobes Dumay, Sheep and Wolves, an epic IKEA shopping trip, and what it means to be a Christian. Now, our plan today is to talk to him about that, why the LGBTQ plus issue is a gospel issue, what it means to be a Christian gatekeeper and more. But first of all, we want you to know how eagerly we read your work, how meaningful it is to us and how encouraged we are by it. Welcome to Stand Firm, Denny. Thank you so much, that is very kind. <laughs> well, now that all the pleasantries are out of the way, let's get down to serious business. What do you make of the Brian Kelly hire? Oh, yeah. Nobody, your listeners aren't going to know who you're talking about. We only have you the say one. Brian Kelly. Uh, well, yeah, the one yeah, Brian, Kelly, Brian Kelly is the most accomplished hire that LSU has ever made. No one, Nick Saban used to coach at LSU. And even when he was hired, he, he didn't have the, you know, string of accomplishments that Brian Kelly has as he's coming in. So uh, this is a big deal. And I think very positive for LSU fans. Well, glad to hear that you're on the positive side. I'm I'm always interested to see your little uh, Twitter sidelines into LSU football. <laughs> well, I, I grew yeah. up there. You know, I, our listener well knows I grew up there. And it's funny, um, you know, the older I get, the the more the pull to my actual sort of 13, 14, 15-year-old um, affections uh, start to come out. And I find myself drawn back to LSU sports sphere much more strongly than I would have ever thought having not gone there but just just um you know hearing those opening strains of the uh you know the when the band comes out on the field you know just sends me back to like sixth grade I tell people I tell people I would never have gone away to college had they been as good in high school as they were you know the past quote 15 20 years because I, I couldn't have imagined ever not missing a game but when I was when I was there, you know, Absolutely. that was a Tommy Hodson and, um, you know, back in high school, those were like the, the, um, the heavyweights back then. And so they were just, they were okay, but <laughs> nothing like they are now. So anyway, we're losing everybody at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut that out. <laughs> how, how many, how many, uh, Anglicans in the ACNA are there other, you know, LSU fans? We have right one in there. our church. Yeah, really. It's okay. a reluctant. Right. So up here in New York, it's a super reluctant Anglican. Like they won't <laughs> self-identify as Anglican. They only go to Good Shepherd. Why am I saying they? He is a particular <laughs> individual. <laughs> Not they. They them. But he, him, loves LSU and w refuses to be identified as an Anglican, but does go to an Anglican church. Yes, it proudly identifies as an LSU fan. That's right. Yes. That's, right. Yes. That's instructive. Yes. instructive. With the flag and everything, but no Anglican flag. Yes, wow. well... Well, so as we as we referenced in the opening, Denny, you've had this back and forth uh, this week on Twitter. Why, why don't you bring our listener up to speed a little bit? How, how did you get involved in this exchange with Kristen Dumay in the first place? You know, I was having a conversation with somebody else online. I forgot what it was about. And I don't think I realized it, but I think she was in the thread. Have you ever been in a thread like that and other people are tagged in it and you're not paying attention to everybody that's tagged. So anyway, I was talking to this other guy and uh, it was, she just came in and started talking to me and asked me the question, uh, do you think that my book comprises false teaching? And um, 
which I think is a fair question because I, I think it, if you looked up the thread, somebody had been talking about false teaching or something. And, um, you know, I thought about that because I, I didn't go on the internet thinking I'm sort of, you know, call anybody a false teacher on Twitter that day. <laughs> but she asked me and she said, you know, um, plain answers would be appreciated. It was very pointed, very stark. She wanted an answer. Do you think my book contains false teaching? And so I thought about it and I, I just, not every true thing a person can say is necessarily the most helpful or needful for the moment. And so I thought about what it, what, what do I need to say here? And I just came to the conclusion that if I don't say what I think, it's just going to sound evasive and probably false. And so I just said what I would tell my church members, which is, I, yeah, I do think that there are things in this book that are um, false teaching that don't comport with the scripture and that are wrong and that are, you know, undermine sound doctrine. So I forgot the exact words that I put it in, but my basic answer to her was, yes, I do think your book has false teaching in it. And so that started a back and forth between the two of us. And she said, you know, what parts of the book? And so I wrote to her um, and explained, you know, in brief, just one thing. I, I wasn't going to do a book review on Twitter, yeah. um, but I, you know, I put one thing in there that I was very concerned about. <clears throat> and then, um, and then I asked her a question because it was directly uh, related to the conversation. I, I, I said to her, you know, I've heard, I, I read your book and I just assumed that you were pro-gay rights. Um, but other people have told me privately that you personally hold a more traditional position. And so I, and then I asked her, do you believe that homosexuality is sinful? And um, she took a while and then came back and answered the question uh, with not a tweet, but with an essay that she put on, I think it was her personal website, about a, uh, 1100, 1200 words or something where she said that she's in process on the issue and that she used to hold to a traditional view. In other words, she would have answered that question. Yes, I believe homosexuality is sinful, but she no longer has any certainty about that position. Her church is re-examining this issue. She's re-examining the issue and she's going to do that in fellowship or in conversation with her LGBTQ brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, so she answered me that way. And my response in brief on social media and then at length on uh, in a, an essay that I wrote on Which everyone should read my website. Wonderful essay. But my long response was, well, that's what she described. She she thinks is a noncommittal position, but it's actually a de facto affirming position. That's right. Because the, the, the key question is not. Okay, tell me your ethical calculus on this. That's important, right? But if you're already if you're already willing to call LGBTQ folks who who aren't repentant, who aren't you know walking with Jesus, if you're already willing to call them brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the whole thing. Um, th that's really the whole question. If you because you're basically saying that you can walk with Jesus, be a disciple of Christ, and you know, walk in homosexuality, that that's the whole thing. And so she, it, from what I read of her essay, that's what she's doing. Um, she already recognizes unrepentant LGBTQ folks as um, brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so for me, the, the ecclesiological question, you know, I'm a Baptist. I know you guys are Anglicans, but for us as a, at the local congregation level, it's a big deal who it is that we're going to say could be a member of a church or not be a member of a church. And if a person came to us and said that they had any kind of unrepentant sin, they said, you know, it, it doesn't matter what it is. It's not just homosexuality. But if they said, you know, this is a sin in my life. I don't turn from it. I'm not going to agree with Jesus about it, but I want to be a member of your church. We're going to say, no, <laughs> uh, we're not going to baptize you. We're not going to bring you into the faith when you're just, you're saying up front, that you're not going to submit to Jesus in th this certain area. So, um, so th that's how I responded to her. And that kind of kicked off, I guess, more attention on the internet. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice understatement. 
Where's, where's Matt? We need, we're used to overstatements here, not understatements, but uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, that was... We were watching it. I think it felt, I think it was like over Thanksgiving that it kicked off. And then, or maybe it was in a few days, Matt kept referring, he kept coming in and shouting, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Watching the thread. Because... Well, Anne, you could talk about, yeah, Anne, you tell them like, what, why was, why was it such interest to us? I mean, you, you've been following this for a long time. And I mean, there's a real confirmation um, to something you've particularly have um, been sensing and, and, noticing from this from the moment the book hit the press it seems so well in the book she didn't have to come out and really say i am affirming of lgbtq relationships the whole structure of the book and the thrust of the book and then the last chapter of the book was a big at least a an emotional resonance for that kind of posture or theological position she was, she's not interested in traditional Orthodox belief. I would say just from reading the book, <laughs> if you want to parse out each of her arguments, you could do that. But I, I was so astonished to read the book and then find that so many evangelical Christians were delighted and thought that it, I mean, the thing that keeps coming back to me is it, that it explains everything. People keep saying that it explains everything. Well, it, it does explain one thing, which is that, people are embarrassed about being evangelical and they would like to be affirming. So, <laughs> and exactly I right. read the book and I thought, Oh, Oh my word, everybody's going to become Episcopalian now. And I've been waiting for months now for that to happen. And now it's, it seems to have happened online publicly visible to everyone. And so I'm really happy because I hate being gaslit, like sitting there waiting for somebody yes. to actually admit what you feel that they uh, really believe. And it's probably fair to say when you're reading the book, she never says, I affirm LGBTQ. That, that there's, there's not a sentence like that mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. What I observed in the book and the reason that I asked the question was because over and over, she brings up gay rights over mm -hmm. and over. She brings up evangelical beliefs about homosexuality. And the portrayal of that was if you're for gay rights, good. Yeah. If you're against gay rights, bad. bad. You know? And so she's got like a good bucket and a bad bucket. And you can tell that she's putting LGBTQ rights in the in the good bucket. And you don't want to be against that. Mm -hmm. So it's not you're like you're ever going to see it in so many words. And so when it came up, I think it came up some months ago in a conversation online with you. And I saw some people talking about it and some people were balking at the suggestion that there was anything affirming about the book. And I'm just thinking, what book are you reading? Mm -hmm. um, you, you don't need a sentence. I am affirming to be able to observe how the issue is treated. Now I was never going to go out and say that she was because I, you know, you didn't have that kind of a statement, but it did appear that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the, the idea that it was outer limits to glean that from the book to me just meant that people weren't, reading the book carefully or they or just weren't being very discerning. I don't, I don't think they want, I don't think people want to see it. I mean, from what I've seen on the internet in the subsequent days, I don't think people want to see that she is affirming or other people um, in her circle. They want her to be orthodox because then, then it can explain everything. And um, I don't think it explains anything. I don't I don't think the progression of facts that she put together explains it explains some things, but it does actually it does illuminate a lot of the landscape, but in in an ironic way, I think she's showing things that she doesn't really. I think if she got a do over, she probably wouldn't want to show us all that stuff. But that's me reading between the lines. Well, it was quite fascinating, kind of the kind of confluence of the various, um, you know, blue checks. Squid, you have a blue check, don't you, Denny? You're you're important enough. Uh, but the, the yeah, Jonathan Lehman, yeah, no, it's good. No, that's not a pejorative. That's a that's a thinly veiled um, covetous statement. So I, <laughs> not veiled at all. <laughs> please, 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 please absolve me, Father Nick. Um, but um, but you had Jonathan Lehman's article that came out, you know, very even handed. I thought was a um, straightforward warning as he, as I he saw it. it 
I loved that article and yeah. I read it and I thought, oh, this is so sensible and calm. And then watching people just lose their minds over that article, I thought was fascinating. Well, what's hilarious is that you have a group of people who are more than happy to label giant swaths, millions upon millions of people um, as white supremacist, uh, uh, misogynist, uh, racists. And yet you get the biblical allusion to wolves in sheep's clothing, which is something you wouldn't want to be called, but it's like, all of a sudden the thin skin comes out and it's like, how dare you? How dare you call and even imply that I might be a wolf, um, you know, sit there and sit down, you white supremacist, um, you know, racist, misogynist, uh, you know, how dare you call me these things? I thought it was was just interesting to observe. But 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 back to the what, what I was saying is that you had Jonathan Lehman's article come out, which tenderized kind of the conversation because all of a sudden that was starting to put people back on their heels, you know, and then you had Neil Shinby who, you know, is just standing in there like a champ. I mean, maybe we should get him on. I mean, he's just, um, which is just refusing to step down. I guess when you actually have a PhD in, you know, actual astrophysics, you know, it's like, well, it's not theoretical chemistry, but well, yes, it is actually. Okay, <laughs> I'll sit down now. But, um, you know, but he's standing in there and he's, he's uh, just relentless in his, you know, kind, I think, but but persistent disagreements with, with people. So you had this situation, I think, where, where you came in unwittingly or not at the proper time where this conversation needed to happen. I mean, this is, you know, in the, in the, in the fullness of time, you know, it's, it's no one's trying to, to say gotcha. No one's trying to pick it or, 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 you know, disparage anyone unnecessarily. We're just simply trying to get some clarity here because this seems to be the trajectory. And it turns out that what we seem to be worried about um, appears to be the case, which is that, there's this trajectory of this deconstruction, as they call it now, uh, which is just a euphemism, in my opinion, for unbelief, but nevertheless, um, uh, deconstruction trajectory that is leading people out of any association with traditional Christian positions on the most hot button contentious issues of the day, namely, you know, quote unquote, sexual identity and all of the various permutations. And so, you know, for me, I, uh, you know, for, for us, Episcopalian, former Episcopalians, Danny, you can appreciate we've we've sort of seen this battle take place decades ago um, with the same equivocations, the same, oh, no, of course, we're not saying this. We're saying that, of course, we still affirm the Bible and all these things. And then ultimately leading to a place where the actual truth of the matter came out and we had a you know, unrepentant, married homosexual man ordained as a bishop. Um, I mean, only you know, two decades not de- right, two de- two decades, right? Very, re- very, very recent memory. Yeah, very exact, exactly. And so we're sitting there. Why? I mean, I remember back when we were. That was only two thousand three, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. but that was what I'm saying. Though the decades mm-hmm. leading up to that were full of these type of conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, the type yeah. of commissions. I mean, I was making a joke with someone that if there's a if there is a Christian Reformed uh, commission being formed to, to quote unquote discuss the issue, I was like, they can just. Um, borrow the thousands of reams of uh, documents the Episcopal Church put together in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and just change the, change the headers because it's the same, the same conversation, which is how, when and how will we finally have enough courage to say what we, everyone knows is true. And I think in, in a sense, you um, were able to at least be part of that clarifying conversation for which I think we're all better off on both sides of these issues. Yeah, I agree. I think clarity is is important here. And I think it's directly germane to the question of false teaching. There is no faithful Christianity which embraces and endorses sexual immorality of any sort. And that's not a new thing. That is the ancient faith everywhere on the planet at all times with all place in all places. So, so this is a this is an innovation. Uh, that's being treated cavalierly in in my view. And it's important for people to see this. And I think, honestly, the urgency becomes all the more um, clear when you think about the impact that a book like that has when it's being read by so many of uh, people who are evangelical Christians. Um, it's influencing a lot of people. I think they just need to know what they're reading. Amen. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was a line that I find myself, and I think that both JD and Anne would agree, talking about with people a lot, which is the line between a brother or sister in Christ who is wrong about something and 
someone who is not a Christian or someone who is a wolf or a, a false teacher? How do how do we go about discerning the difference between a a sheep who's wandering and a wolf in sheep's clothing? Yeah, for me, the key issue is response to correction. And that can take time, okay? But what I'm looking for when somebody, you know, raises up and they've embraced some kind of an, an error, okay? How, how are you going to respond when that's pointed out to you? <clears throat> I think of two biblical examples, um, two biblical examples that are quite different, but I think relevant. You think of Apollos, right? So Apollos is preaching the gospel. He, he doesn't know. He basically knows the baptism of John. So he's, it's not, it's, it's good as far as it goes, but he doesn't have the whole, the whole message. And so then he meets with Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila explain the gospel to him more accurately. So he's got the full thing. And so by the time, you know, Apollos gets to Corinth, he's this mighty preacher. And, and Paul can say, I laid a foundation. I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. In other words, Paul says, we're on the same team now, right? So it there, it was just, it was a error of omission. He just didn't have the full story. But what, what happens? Uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila bring this extra information to him, and he changes. He starts preaching the true, the true gospel. Um, I think of the, the, uh, the very different situation, but relevant to this conversation, of Paul's confrontation with the apostle Peter. Mm. That was very severe in Galatians chapter two. Paul says, I stood up and opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned because he was separating himself and, and not eating with the Gentiles because of these unbiblical, you know, Jewish scruples. And so th there was something really, really bad going on there. Now, I believe Galatians was written before the council of Jerusalem, but guess what? By the time they get to the Council of Jerusalem, they're all on the same page, mm. right? I mean, this is not that by the time you get to Acts 15, there's an apostolic decree. They're on the same page and they're, they're moving forth in unity. And so what I'm saying is, is that if there's an error in teaching that any of us are, you know, teaching, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've taught error before. I can, I can think <laughs> of times that I was wrong about something. And the key issue was, is when somebody comes up to me and confronts me with the truth and says, look, this is what our church's confessional statement says. This is how we understand the Bible, or you're not reading this correctly. What's my response to that over time? If it's arrogance and can't be corrected by relevant authorities, that's when the alarm bells start going off, when, when you can't be corrected at all. So for me, that's the key issue. When you look at it like a, you know, an Apollos, when you look at a Peter, obviously they were wrong about this, but they were correctable. Okay. Now, what you see in scripture with the wolves and, you know, false teachers, which there's all these um, uh, really stark warnings about false teachers and about how they stand condemned, um, there you can get to a point where, yeah, you are numbered among the, you know, the non-elect. I mean, you're, you're numbered among those who, who don't know Christ because of, the, because of your unrepentant persistence in the error. So, I, you know, so the question is, is how do you know the difference? For me, the key issue is how does a person respond to correction? Now, the, the only thing that I'm not delivering a, a definitive pronouncement about is, is I'm not telling you how long that takes. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I do know that in my church, if somebody were standing up and were teaching error, they would be instructed to immediately desist, right? And if they didn't desist, then our church's discipline would kick in, and that would move according to a certain uh, at a certain pace. But it wouldn't take that long. But if if they refuse to repent of some grave false teaching, they could be, you know, excommunicated from from the church. So however long that takes is how long it would it would take. But even then, I would still be praying and hoping that they would repent sure. and come back and, and, and be restored. And I think that there's apostolic warrant for that. I mean, I think about what Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And the whole context here is about confronting false teaching, confronting false teachers. That's right. 
with the hope that they would, you know, respond to the correction and come back to the truth. So the key issue is, do you see persistence in unrepentant false teaching or do you see correctability? That's the key issue. Yeah. Yeah. And even in Paul's letters, Timothy and Titus, you know, we have Demas who, you know, was swayed back by the cares of the world. I mean, we had Alexander the silversmith, you know, who was no, no fan. Paul was no fan of him. You know, we had back then we have biblical warrant for what we're witnessing, which is that people will put their hand to the plow and pull it away and, and will will affirm initially and then turn back. And we that's there's no joy in that for a pastor. There's no um, there's no sense of um, vindication that, OK, well, you know, you're out of this church or out of our fellowship. But because you're right, Denny, there's a great sadness to it. I mean, all of us are sitting here having split from the uh, Episcopal Church and in many ways, most of the Western Anglican communion with deep sadness and deep, um, deep sense of uh, loss in many ways. But it was for a greater well, I like to say it was for a greater fear. You know, it was a my much bigger fear was that I would <clears throat> I would be held accountable for for well being a false teacher or for leading people astray for for witnessing, you know, as James says, you know, not all of you should aspire to be teachers. Like, well, I get that because sometimes we have to say and and teach and and put ourselves at enmity with the world. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, I feel for you and I think that's a good metric to use about the, the, the sort of lack of repentance or, or visible um, sort of restoration that we hope and pray for. But, but this idea that it is heavy handed or sort of dogmatic or cavalier is just another one of the caricatures that's often laid out there by the, the quote unquote white evangelical church or whatever that we're, you know, that's being painted with such a bad brush right now. And it's just another one of, in my opinion, one of these straw men or red herring or whatever you want to say that is so easily um, picked up and run uh, by, with by people who have no intention of, of building up this church. It's just with great glee and joy tearing it down. And that's what we've talked about before and with um, with the Jesus and John Wayne book is that it it's purported to be a, hist- a historical survey, um, an objective historical survey from outside. But it, what it reads like is like a like a malicious travel log from uh, to visiting a hostile people, you know, because I mean, I know I mean, I'm sure, you know, some of these people they talk about personally in the book. Any, I mean, certainly I grew up, uh, we've talked about before um, in and amongst a lot of the promise keepers movement and the wild at heart craze and all these things and yet um the the sort of there's there's no affection no sense of um sort of familial criticism you know it's like it's it's that it was in that book and so that's another one of the um challenges for me in this entire conversation is that what's purported from one side to be an objective you know you can't handle the truth sort of statement reads and is actually received as such an obvious heavy-handed polemic that at the very least admit that, you know, at the very least admit, say, you know, this is, this is, uh, we have no affinity affection, affinity or affection at all for this church and these people. And so this is our take on it, which is at least honest, where it's being purported as you and me and the rest of us who are reacting to it are just upset and reactionary because we've finally been called out on something. And, you know, as if we needed, as if anyone that has been involved in this quote unquote white evangelical world is unaware of any of these problems. I mean, the Ted um, Haggart's and the um, Pat Robertson's and the Jimmy Swaggart's. I mean, these are not, these are not hidden from sight, right? For goodness sakes. And we have, we've, we've been part of that. We've seen that we've, we are in the process of, of um, recalibrating from all this. And yet, uh, somehow it's, 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 it's like this gotcha piece. And I just, it's, I'm glad that this whole conversation is being exposed for what, I don't want to say what it solely is, but certainly what, what it, it partly is, which is a deep dissatisfaction with a persistent witness to what we would call biblical Christianity with respect to human sexuality and God's created design for men and women in particular. Um, and, People are throwing whatever they can at whoever is saying that. And this book and this entire sort of deconstruction movement are just part and parcel of the same reaction to um, the law uh, that provokes wrath when it is um, when it when it's laid out there um, for the world. I'm curious about two things. I, I feel like part of the way that you can tell that somebody is headed in one direction or another are two flags maybe that I'm curious about um, what you think of them. The 
first is the the misuse of Galatians, slave, free, male, female. I feel like if somebody starts trying to talk about that text, it it often is a sign that something's about to go hideously wrong. <laughs> and right. then the, the other is the use of the discussion of pain, which I've watched online, the appeal to pain over and over again. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about those two. Yeah, there is a, a thing that has been discussed online called untethered empathy. Um, there's a good way that we want to be entering into and uh, understanding the hurts and the traumas that people have been to. I mean, in fact, it's just the, the people have been in. And, and I would say that that's ordinary pastoral ministry, right? Um, th- there's a sense in which we want to be, I would even say, empathetic, okay? Someone recently shared with me um, that they, I didn't know this, a person I've known for years recently shared with me that they were in a previous marriage that was abusive, physically abusive. How are you supposed to respond to that? Um, you're, the way you're supposed to respond to it is weep with those who weep. Um, you're supposed to listen to them. You're supposed to figure out how that's affected their life. And then you're supposed to minister gospel balm to their soul. So you, you don't want to deny that those things have happened, that those things may have happened in a church. You want to acknowledge that and, and understand that the problem happens is when this idea of what we might call untethered empathy happens, which is you so identify with someone else's pain that you're, you yourself are no longer grounded to the truth. They're not either. And now you're just both out there floating in a sea of feeling and emotion and grievance that all of a sudden your grievance is not against just the sin that was done against you, but against truth. Um, so there's lots of alternate explanations out there besides the Christian explanation as to why horrible things happen to people and how th- they should find meaning in it or, or deal with it. And, you know, some of those other explanations are flatly contradictory to the Bible. And so if you're being totally moved along by feeling and by emo- emotion and untethered empathy, and by that I mean empathy that's not tethered to the truth of God's word, yeah, you can get into this grievance posture where all of a sudden you're holding God's word in contempt. And in, instead of just holding sin in contempt and the people, the people whose sin directly hurted you, instead of holding that in contempt, you're going to hold God in contempt and his word in contempt. And the way that he designed things as if that's the problem. Yeah. That's what happens to people. And it's so easy to go into. It's easy to go into not only if it happened to you, it's also easy to go into, even if you're trying to minister somebody that, that was in that kind, was in some sort of an abusive situation. If you have untethered, um, just emoting with them, you could enter into that same kind of a grievance attitude. And that's what I see happening so much today. Uh, when I'm reading a book like Jesus and John Wayne, it's untethered. It's, it's a parade of horribles. And so, and much of the, the, uh, the experiences that she recounts are genuinely horrible. Yeah. It's a parade of horribles, but it's giving it an exploit. It's blaming it on what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood. And it's blaming it on God's truth. And, and that's where we have the problem. Now you're just you know, acknowledging these traumatic situations, but it's, you're, you're, you're blaming it on the wrong place. So I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's, well that's the thing I'm concerned about. And I'm afraid that people's boat is getting really far out from shore uh, because of this kind of untethered uh, empathy idea. Uh, there was another thing you asked, though. You were asking about, about Galatians part. 3. Yeah, Galatians 3. Yeah, Galatians 3.28. Paul says that uh, there's neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all, uh, we're all um, Abraham's offspring. That text has been, uh, I forgot who said it. I think it was an egalitarian. He said it's the Magna Carta of yeah. Christian freedom. Yeah, somebody just, who said that. I've got a book uh, about about evangelicals who formerly opposed women's ordination who now do. And it's like 18 separate essays. And they're all the exact same essay <laughs> on, the same, on that verse. They're, they're just variations yeah, yeah. on mean, that. So, it's, so, so a, lot of, a lot of folks will take that verse 
And they'll notice that the apostle is talking about they're not being slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. And they're saying, look, in the gospel, it eliminates all class and social distinctions, including distinctions between male and female. And um, that's obviously for, we won't get bogged, too bogged down on this, but th- that's not what that, that verse is talking about. It's not, it's not trying to say that you cease to be a man or a woman, right? It's, it's trying to say is, is that your maleness or femaleness doesn't give you a leg up or a leg down when it comes to your relationship to Christ. Um, we all share equally in the benefits of salvation. And you're not more or less of a Christian, more or less saved, more or less a child of Abraham based on your sex or based on your social status. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That's what that's about. It's not trying to say that those realities don't exist in the world. In other words, Galatians 3.28 cannot be played against Genesis 1 and 2. And everything else that the Bible says about what it means to be male and female. So, yes... Uh, we're all um, equal in Christ in terms of the benefits of redemption, in terms of we're all equal in terms of being equally created in the image of God. So we have equal value and dignity before God. Yes, 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 yes. Amen. All, all to that. But the Bible still teaches about sex differences. Uh, yeah, Paul himself. St. Paul. Yeah. Paul. The same yeah. one who wrote Galatians. Wrote, <laughs> That's yeah. right. Paul, First Paul Corinthians himself. And- Uh, Ephesians 5, I mean, you you think about the fundamental social relationship of society, it's marriage. Paul's really clear about this in Ephesians 5 when he talks about this. He's really clear when he talks about church leadership, for example. Church leadership, too, has a reflection of these principles of, of, of sex difference. So you don't want to play one part of Scripture against another. And when it comes to egalitarian hermeneutics, you end up getting Galatians 328 being a canon within a canon, it just sort of flattens everything else out. It demolishes everything and which ends up taking it out of context and against what the apostle meant when he first wrote it. Mm -hmm. It is though a telltale sign of where people are going, you know, the way they talk about that text. If it all of a sudden becomes the text that's norming every other text, Everything else has to bow down to it in a sort with an egalitarian interpretation. You know that's you're going in the wrong direction. Another question that I wanted to ask you is some uh, is about something that I've seen actually in in relation to your name specifically on Twitter in the last few days as a quote unquote gatekeeper of Orthodox Christianity. You just being a normal guy are easily dismissed by certain sectors of Twitter who want to say who's Denny Burke to be a gatekeeper. We have the creeds for that. So I wanted to ask you about this idea of gatekeeping. Should people in the church be interested in knowing where the fence is and what, what how, how do the creeds work and, and should, should the church be interested in applying the creeds and indeed what the creeds imply to things that we see in the world? Sure. And let me just say a word about my specific role okay so i wear a number of different hats i'm a professor at a seminary i'm a pastor at a church and i'm the president of a an organization that focuses on what the bible teaches about male and female okay cbmw now in that latter role um it's a parachurch group it's not a church but we've had a role in convening groups of people from lots of different churches to come together and articulate common statements of conviction about what it means to be created as God's image bearers as male and female. In 1987, that resulted in the Danvers statement, which focused on uh, egalitarian complementarian issues. 30 years later, that focused on uh, what became known as the Nashville statement, which focused on LGBTQ type of issues and took an, an orthodox point of view on those things. And so a lot of people are saying, well, who are you and who is CBMW? Who, who are you to, to be telling us what to do? And my answer to that is um, nobody. Um, I, CBMW doesn't have any authority. I don't have any authority over you. The, the whole goal of, of our work is to assist the entities that do have authority and that's churches. 
Um, it, it's churches that, it, that are God's plan for the Great Commission on the planet, on planet Earth. And if Christians want to get together, you know, across denominational, across ecclesial lines to, to articulate common statements of concern and then take those back to their churches and then commend a, a certain theological vision, that's totally fine. Um, but it does have to be embraced by churches, okay, for, for, for authority to kick in. And so th- that's what my, my heart is. I, I want churches to be strengthened. I want Christian ministries to be strengthened by the statements and the convictions that we declare. If we're not doing that, it, for me, it's mission not accomplished. Amen. Um, I want churches strengthened. I want to see Christians actually strengthened in their own convictions. Now, those of us who came together, for example, in the Nashville statement, um, we weren't coming up with a statement that had any inherent authority to it. And that had to be that that statement would have to be recognized as truthful by Christians and then adopted by their churches or, or by their ministries for it to have any authority at That's all. Right. Now, that has happened a lot since 2017 when we adopted the Nashville statement. I can't tell you how many seminaries, including my own, including, you know, RTS, uh, Union University, I, mean, I, could, I could just go down the line of the different schools and in Christian institutions that have adopted this and have seen this as a faithful standard. I can tell you about a lot of churches yep. and denominations. Um, the entire PCA uh, adopted the Nashville Statement as a faithful teaching tool. Uh, what was it, about two years ago? So I, what I'm saying is, is that by itself, it was nothing. And by myself, I'm nothing. But if we can put together something that assists a church or a ministry in helping them to clarify um, their conviction as it applies to these contemporary challenges. Hallelujah. That's, that's all we're trying to do. So, um, but our authority at the end of the day is, is really in the word of God. And the question is, is whether or not God's people are going to hear that authoritative truth proclaimed. And that's all we're trying to, ref- to reflect is what does God's truth say about these things? How can we put the word out there? Jesus said something really profound in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. Mm. They will not listen to another. So my conviction is, is that the more we hoist up the shepherd's voice, the more his people are going to come towards it. That, that's just is what's going to happen. Now, a lot of people are going to go away from it and they're going to kick against the goads in the meantime. But that doesn't mean that you bring down the standard because certain people don't like it. Jesus's people will follow his voice. Mm. It's our job to, to proclaim what he says and to do it faithfully and then to watch him draw his people to himself. Amen. That's a quote really well said, Denny. And I'm sorry, Ann, go ahead. I was just going to like jump in really fast just to say my own grievance. <laughs> I, I decided in this year to take offense. I'm tired of everybody else taking offense, but I decided to be severely offended that people online, people who I have been close to online would attempt to anathematize CBMW to, to try to put it beyond the pale of Christian belief and community in the U.S. and would at the same time go towards people like Dumay as if that expression of Christianity is really good and the CBMW is just beyond the pale. And that's what I finally, I'm not, and I'm I'm a former Episcopalian. I, I went to a conservative Baptist boarding school and I had a hard time there with the whole, you know, I come from Baptist roots, but I'm really deeply not Baptist aesthetically <laughs> and in all kinds of ways. Right. I yeah. would never, I would never have woken up in the morning and said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to get online and I'm going to defend the CBMW against Kristen Kovas <laughs> Dume. I, 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 you know, I'm going to be on the side of Jesus and, and John Wayne. I don't even know who John Wayne <laughs> is. Like when I, when I read this book, I just did not have the, the emotional resonance for that, but I just, decided to be offended. I'm not doing that. The The CBMW is a Christian, a deeply Amen. thoughtful Christian organization made up of Christian men and women. If, you know, if other Christians don't like some of the whatever, you know, or how things are worded or whatever, you know, go write your own, form your own organization, but don't Amen. make That's them right 
anathema that don't put them outside of the Christian family. I'm, I'm shocked still by that. And I'm, I'm choosing my offense. (laughs) Um, So I just wanted to throw that in there before I forgot it. Well, I love, I love everything that you're doing um, and with the CBMW and point out all the time that one of your initial and headline signatories was the late J.I. Packer. So as Anglicans, we have, um, that's true. you know, we have, well, I mean, we can say shouldn't be like, they're all Baptists because they're not, you're not. Well, no, it's actually, I tell people, lines. Yeah. I tell people in a variety of contexts when they talk about these things um, that 20 years ago, that list, if you had told me, or even today, if you just gave me a list of those signatories, you know, of Al Moeller and J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and, you know, down the list of um, sort of evangelical um dignitaries, if you just told me they all signed something, I probably would sign it sight unseen. Be like, sure, whatever that is, you know, I mean, unless it, unless it had to do with infant Baptist, but none of those people could agree. <laughs> none of those people could agree on infant baptism. So, but, but if you told me that that group of people agreed on something that, that they knew was going to be needed to be articulated in such a way, then I would have said fine. And I think for the work of the CBMW, that one of the things that, that this entire conversation is uh, with respect to men and women is, is ham- hampered by is this ridiculous idea that the whole sort of understanding of the differentiation and complementarity of men and women was some sort of 1940s construct, you know, some sort of post-war boomer idea that, that there's never been like deep and deep and pervasive philosophical and theological thought all the way back down through, through the, I mean, as far as you can go back. Uh, particularly uh, Christian theological reflections on the mystery of the incarnation and the respect and the, the complementarity of the sexes and the, the the miracle of childbirth and the all of this together, and it's just dismissed out of hand as if you know as if John Paul II even in our you know almost our lifetimes never wrote theology of the body you know drawing on the history of the church as if right. as if any of this sort of deep sophistication. Uh, it's all just dismissed with a wave of the hand and a, and a sort of hat tip to patriarchy, you know, or white, to whites, white, white patriarchy. men woke up one morning and decided to suppress all the women. <laughs> That's right. And they did such a good job, too. I mean, like <laughs> all the women, all the evangelical women in America have been so shut down. None of them can speak about anything. There's no book deals for them. There's nothing for women in America, white or any woman. I mean, it's just the patriarch patriarchy won, obviously. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm astonished. I'm sorry, I'm just stop this. Sorry. No, oh, keep, keep going. Good. No, no, I'm good. I'll stop. <laughs> Someone's know, got to represent the just told me, Someone has got to. Somebody right. just told me your, your voice is, is so important. And I just, every time somebody says that, I just want to like punch them. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have the the militarism comes into my soul. Like, no, I there's a there's a a, a rich and happy uh, community of men and women, Christian men and women that Amen. have existed since the beginning. And uh, it well, they're, they're re- reversing the curse. I mean, that's what's happening. Like we're actually living in a reversal of of the curse, which put enmity between men and women for me. I will trust that that in the midst of this confusing and and polarizing world, that God is actually giving giving my masculinity back to me, like giving femininity back to Liza, like actually recreating something that had been disfigured and shattered in the fall. And I've experienced that. I've seen that. And I will continue to support people who who have likewise seen and experienced it and will will uphold them. And as you said, Denny, uh, fly that flag as high and as loud. Well, flags don't have uh, speakers, but attached with uh, with speakers, fly the flag as loudly and speak as boldly and as 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 I can. Not for the sake of winning an argument, but for the for the gospel, for actually bringing reconciliation and healing to to lost and hurting men and women who are who are confused about their gender and their sexuality and their purpose and their place and their plan and, and all of these things. And it's not an ancillary or incidental issue, this question. It's a foundational and central one. And I think that you are to be commended in your um, 
courage and your uh, courage under fire and your uh, persistence and clarity and and frankly for the graciousness that you've um, exhibited because uh, you know I I don't have nearly um, as many people who are triggered by me um, as they are by you <laughs> but I'd like to think and maybe that's because I wouldn't be as able to handle it as well uh, but you know I think that the call that the opportunity to take offense and to snark and to be much more ungracious is always ever present and I for one am grateful for your witness in that respect as well so thank you I appreciate it we need to pray for each other that the Lord would uh, make us happy and holy amen and uh not sad and snarky um <laughs> because that's not going to be doing anything to serve anybody mm-hmm. well in the, in the interest of full disclosure you know uh, if we're confessing false teaching in the past i um before we had children and when i was a little bit more cynical and and despairing sad and snarky maybe um i used to make fun of when i was finishing my phd and i had my phd friends there at southern um i made a joke which i thought was really funny i was like let me guess you know southern phds is all either about headship or the authority of scripture <laughs> and i thought that was so funny because of course who would think those two issues were important um well that fast forward some 10 years and i live in a constant state of uh, regret that I didn't in fact do a PhD on either the authority scripture or the concept of headship because I realized wow. how, uh, how important those two issues are. And I'm grateful for, um, uh, so I, I, I backed into it, not the least of which after, um, our first child and now sitting on our fifth child, uh, realize that these questions are in fact at the heart of everything. And so we will continue to pray, for you guys and continue to support y'all in whatever way we can and certainly consider uh, despite the the obvious differences between anglicans and baptists on certain issues um that in these first order issues as uh dr moeller would say uh we are uh, brothers and sisters at arms um together hopefully joyfully laboring in the vineyard uh for the sake of the gospel and um we're glad and grateful for you um to, to join to join with what y'all are doing there at the CBMW and, and elsewhere. And you guys are really encouraging to me. It's wonderful to hear about your faithfulness and commitment. So grateful for all of you. Amen. Well, that is going to be all the time that we have today. Please go follow Denny Burke on Twitter, read his stuff, uh, read CBMW. You will be encouraged. You will hear the good news proclaimed. Um, we are grateful for his work and those working with him. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to Ann Kennedy and to J.D. Koch, and a special thank you once again to Tenny Burke. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.